Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Conversation, because today we're kicking off a brand new series of messages about a topic that we just don't talk about very often in church. In fact, it's a topic that we don't talk about enough period. And it's a message series that I've been looking forward to and planning for a number of months and looking forward to having the opportunity to share it with you. But I bet you're familiar. You can relate to the idea. You, you know how, you know, you go through your day on a normal day of your life, interacting with various people and exchanging pleasantries with folks that you don't know, just in an effort to try to make, you know, social interactions a little bit less awkward. You know, on a typical day, you might have a conversation with a grocery store cashier and a server at a restaurant and maybe you come across a neighbor who's walking the sidewalk and y'all are passing one another and on you know the chances are that when you have that kind of an engagement with somebody that kind of a interaction with somebody you're probably both going to start that conversation by asking the other one how you doing you know and like our our cultural custom like just what is kind of almost expected and normal in our culture is to respond with some kind of a positive answer. You know, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, I'm doing good, having a good day. How are you? You know, that kind of thing. And the reality is that we say that more often than we mean it, right? I mean, if somebody asks you how you're doing and you say you're doing well and you ask them and they say they're doing great, chances, I mean, it's possible that that that's just the absolute, you know, honest answer, that you're both actually thriving, you're having a a good day, feeling good, everything's, you know, uh, sunshine and rainbows kind of thing. But I, I think, in fact, I'll bet that you know what it feels like to be having a bad day or a rough week or a hard year and still tell the cashier that you're doing fine, right? I mean, you know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. I've done that a thousand times where there's a lot on my mind, my heart is heavy, I'm worried about things, I'm anxious about things, and yet somebody, the you know, server at the restaurant says, hey, how you doing? My name is so-and-so, and I'm gonna take care of you today, and, and well, we're doing great, you know? When the reality is, there's a lot, a lot that's weighing on my heart. And we feel this pressure We feel this pressure in our culture. Sometimes it's pressure from the outside. Sometimes it's pressure from the inside. But we feel this pressure to tell the world that we're doing okay, that we're keeping it together, that we're managing ourselves and keeping up with our responsibilities and keeping our head above water and, you know, juggling all the spinning plates and all of that kind of stuff and that we're doing well. And it's pretty profound to me. In fact, it's amazing to me that we feel that much pressure about convincing the cashier who we likely have never met and may never see again. We feel that kind of pressure to put on that kind of a strong, brave front, that kind of a face in front of people that we don't know. And I suspect, in fact, I'll bet, that many of us feel even greater pressure 
to put on a brave, confident face in front of the people that we know care about us, the people that we're closer to, and maybe especially with the people in our family of faith. Because the truth is, and we know this, the truth is that beneath the surface in our story and beneath the surface in the stories of the people all around us, the people that we love and care about, life is not as easy as we make it sound in the grocery store line, right? I mean, life is not as simple. It's not as carefree. It's not as easy as we make it sound when we respond to that question from the cashier. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can can admit that every one of us feels like life is like a little bit like a pressure cooker, right? Where there is stress and anxiety, strain that is being pushed on us from all sides. We're feeling all kinds of expectation, all kinds of wondering about the unknown, all kinds of pressure. And in fact, it seems like it's getting worse. And so today we're beginning a series of messages talking about what happens when all of that pressure builds up and stacks up and adds up to the point that it gets to be too much. We're talking about what happens when hopelessness starts to set in, when we feel disconnected, when we can't seem to muster up that joy and that hope that we once had. We're starting a series about struggling with depression. And I don't know about your story. I know about some of your stories. I don't know where you stand today. I don't know whether depression feels familiar to you or not. But you need to know it's a more common problem than you may realize. Just a few statistics. I want to tell you that the National Institute of Mental Health estimates that just in the year 2019, just in that one year pre-pandemic, in 2019, almost 8% of U.S. adults experienced a major depressive episode, which means an episode of prolonged sadness that lasts over two weeks. And the reality is that most people who experience symptoms of depression don't seek treatment for those symptoms. And so almost any statistic that we could share, those estimates are guaranteed to be too low. The World Health Organization says that depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide, and it's a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. And here's the really scary part, truly, is that depression is having an overextended emphasis on our young people. About four months ago, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory about a mental health crisis that's happening among youth in our culture. The Surgeon General said, mental health challenges in children, adolescents, and young adults are real and widespread. And even before the pandemic, an alarming number of young people struggled with feelings of helplessness and depression, and rates have increased over the past decade. Our future well-being depends on how we support and invest in the next generation. That same advisory that the Surgeon General was issuing shared some details, including this. It said, before the COVID-19 pandemic, mental health challenges were already the leading cause of disability and poor life outcomes in young people. With up to one in five, up to 20% of children ages 3 to 17 in our country having a mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral disorder. Additionally, from 2009 to 2019, the share of high school students 
who reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40%, up to one in three of our high school students. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in a whole bunch of statistics in this series, but the reason I wanted to share those few with you, the reason I wanted to prime the pump that way is to help you understand why we need to talk about this. Some of you in our audience, some of you who are hearing this message, from the, the idea, the concept of depression is all too familiar to you. You know the feeling. You know what it's like. You understand the loss of energy and initiative. You understand the fear that you'll never escape the darkness that has engulfed you. Others of you who are listening, maybe you've never experienced that kind of symptom. You aren't familiar with those symptoms of depression that we're describing, but that doesn't guarantee that you never will experience those. And I can tell you already that depression affects a lot of the people that you already love and care about. And we need to talk about depression in the church because the church hasn't always felt like a safe place to talk about this. We need to talk about this problem in our Christian family because for some reason, our Christian communities have not always been a safe place to admit or, de or describe this kind of struggle. In preparation for this series, I read some excerpts from a book called Why Christians Shoot Their Wounded, uh, which of course is a you know, proverbial um, idea, thankfully. Um, but in that it's written by a psychiatrist who was describing treating some of his Christian patients. And he shared an anecdote about an, a conversation with a patient who was a member at a nationally recognized evangelical church out on the west coast of our country. And he said that that, that patient told him, he said, I'm so, so grateful for the treatment, both you know, medicine and also the uh, mental health treatment that you're able to give me, he said, but I would never, ever feel like I could tell anybody at my church that I was under the care of a therapist or that I was taking medication for my mental health. And we have to change that. We have to get to the point where this is a topic that we can talk about because there is a spiritual element to the battle with depression. Now, it's important for you to hear me say, and I'm going to say this in every message during this series, you're going to hear me talk about my conviction that there is also a legitimate medical component to addressing depression. And Heritage recommends, our entire leadership recommends without reservation that anybody who is experiencing depression or any other mental health challenge should seek help from a doctor, a counselor, or a therapist. In fact, if you need help making arrangements to get that rolling, to get that started, we will help you make that happen because there is no shame in suffering. And the entire goal of today's message, the one thing that I want us to accomplish over the next few minutes today is to start chipping away at removing the stigma associated with depression and mental health in the church. Because after all, the brain is an organ of the body, just like the heart or the lungs. And your physical health has, this, has vulnerability and your emotional health has comparable vulnerability. We would never question anybody for pursuing treatment when they were having trouble breathing. And we should, neither should we question or be suspicious of the idea of someone getting help for their emotional well-being as well. 
Depression is not the result of a lack of faith. And the truth is, the truth is that even prophets get depressed. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, whether it's the kind with pages or the kind with pixels, I'd be thrilled for you to join me in 1 Kings, which is one of the books in the middle of the Old Testament section of your Bible. If you've got a, a Bible on your phone, it'll probably be easy to find it because the one will be up at the top of the, you know, 1 Kings will be up at the top of the alphabetical list. If you've got an old, you know, Bible with pages in it, use the table of contents. It's totally okay to, you know, find your way there that way. But when you open up to 1 Kings, you're looking at this ancient chronicle history of the days of the nation of Israel about 2,800 or 2,900 years ago. And I want to introduce you this morning to a prophet of God, someone who spoke on God's behalf. You could think of them like a preacher, a prophet of God who spoke on God's behalf, and his name was Elijah. And Elijah has consistently been recognized throughout Jewish and Christian history as one of the most faithful followers of God in all of history. Elijah lived about 2,900 years ago, almost 850 years before the time that Jesus walked the earth, and he was this influential, powerful, bold, and dynamic leader on God's behalf among the people of Israel. And his ministry, his context, constantly required that he was interacting with the court of King Ahab of Israel. Now, King Ahab was known as one of the most wicked kings to ever lead Israel. He was somebody who was constantly leading Israel away from faithfulness to God, and Elijah was standing in the gap trying to fight that momentum, trying to fight against all of that movement away from faithfulness from faithfulness to God. And the summary version of the interactions between Elijah and Ahab goes like this. Ahab and his Gentile wife Jezebel, which means she was a foreigner, somebody that he was not supposed to marry. That wasn't part of God's will for his life. But Ahab and his wife Jezebel promoted the worship of an idol God named Baal, who they believed was the God that controlled rain and storms. And in, as a result, they thought that Baal was the source of all of their agricultural success. So if the crops got the rain that they needed, Ahab and Jezebel gave credit to Baal for doing that. And so much of Elijah's ministry involved performing miracles and signs that were related to weather and food because Elijah's job was to demonstrate the superiority of the one true God, Yahweh. This was the constant battle, the constant back and forth, the constant tension that was happening in those days in Israel. In fact, the most famous incident in that tension between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel, the most famous incident is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18, which is one of the most fascinating chapters in all of the Bible. We're not going to read it together today because we're going to read from chapter 19 in just a second. But if you think about it, you ought to make a bookmark at 18 and read that chapter at one point because it really is just amazing what you see happen. The very short story is that Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest on this raised area that they called Mount Carmel. 
Carmel, excuse me. And there, will, there were these two altars. They set up altars, one for Baal and one for the one true God, Yahweh. But they weren't able to set the sacrifices on those altars on fire. This was the contest. They were going to see which of the two gods would set their altar on fire. And so the prophets of Baal went first and they chose one of the altars and they set up their offering and they spent hours that day praying and pleading with Baal to show up and set the sacrifice on fire to prove that he was real and nothing ever happened. Not even a spark, not even a little puff of smoke. And then when it was finally Elijah's turn, after hours and hours, Elijah decided to up the ante. When it was his turn, he said, hey, y'all bring in 12 large jars of water and pour them all over the sacrifice. And so after they did that, the sacrifice and the altar, the stones and the area around the altar was all just saturated with water. And then Elijah with just, I mean, with like one sentence, Prays to God, says, God, prove to everybody who you are. And it says that fire came down from heaven and it burned up the sacrifice and it melted the stones and it actually caught the water on fire. And everybody who saw it, all of the people who were there to witness this showdown were amazed. And all of the prophets of Baal were immediately executed so that they could not have any influence over the people of Israel anymore. And this entire event seems like this in incredibly momentous. It's, it's a momentum shifting moment for, in favor of Elijah's God. And then it's followed by another miraculous event because they've been in drought conditions with no rain in that area for three years at this point. And Elijah says, today the rain is coming. And sure enough, just a few moments later, they look to the west and they can see rain clouds building. And after three years of not a drop of rain in Israel, suddenly they experience this incredible deluge. And after reading those two stories, that's the entirety of 1 Kings 18 right there. After reading those two stories, you would expect that Elijah would be feeling pretty good about himself and his connection with God. You would suspect that Elijah would be feeling pretty, pretty thrilled about his purpose and the success of his mission because by every metric, when you read 1 Kings 18, it appears that Elijah is on top of his prophetic game, that he is in his prime. He is in the center of God's will for his life. He's experiencing God's obvious and, and profound affirmation. He has every reason to be confident. And so you wouldn't expect to hear that Elijah was right on the cusp of a great faith struggle. You wouldn't suspect that there was a major depression that was looming in Elijah's life, but that's actually exactly what was about to happen. He was about to experience depression that was overwhelmingly debilitating for him. And we start hearing about it in the very next chapter. First Kings 19, beginning in verse one, we see the aftermath of Elijah's victorious moment, this showdown at Mount Carmel. Verse one says, Ahab, the king of Israel, told his wife Jezebel about everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword. And Jezebel, this 
foreign lady who had been brought in as a queen. She was not of Jewish origin. She did not have that background. She did not have that faith. She was enraged. And verse two says that Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message. May the gods do whatever they want to do to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of those prophets, which is to say, if I haven't ended your life by this time tomorrow. Jezebel is furious about what happened at Carmel, furious about the the blow to the influence and the respect of Baal in the country. And if you thought for a second, if you thought that her threat against Elijah would seem insignificant and hollow to him because God was on his side, you'd be so wrong because verse three says, Elijah was terrified and he got up and he ran for his life and he arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. Now they, they make that sound like he, you know, went across the street, but the trip to Beersheba in Judah is about 160 kilometers and he crossed an international boundary from the kingdom of Israel into the kingdom of Judah. I mean, he made a long trip. He had time to stew. He had time to worry. He was sweating the entire time. I don't know how long it took him to get there. I'm not saying he ran the whole way. I'm saying that over the course of this journey, he was in this state of panic and fear. And verse four says, he himself, after leaving his assistant there at Beersheba, he himself went further on into the desert, a full day's journey. So he's traveling alone in desert territory, no civilization around. He finally sat down under a solitary broom bush that he found and he longed, listen to this, he longed for his own death. And he spoke to God and he said, It's more than enough, Lord. Another way of saying that would be, this is all too much, God. I'm overwhelmed. I can't take this. I can't handle all of this. He says, take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. Which is to say, Elijah was looking to beat Jezebel to the punch. He couldn't see the point in continuing to move forward. He couldn't see how any of this was ever going to turn out any other way than to be painful and traumatic for him. Now, logically, as we're watching the movie scene of this moment in the minds, in our own mind's eye, and we see Elijah sitting under this bush out in the desert, logically, we want to say to this character, Elijah, listen, hold on just a second. You don't have anything to worry about. I mean, remember, God showed up for you at Mount Carmel in a way that nobody expected that God would do it. And it's not just that God showed up. It's like God showed up in a big, huge way. Don't you remember? He was like melting rocks and catching water on fire. Like, Elijah, you don't have to worry. And remember a few moments after that, whenever you prophesied that there was rain coming and suddenly a cloud appeared just because you said so, because you had faith in God? Like, we want to look at Elijah and say, you don't have anything to worry about. Surely, surely the God that can melt rocks and burn water and send rain on command, surely that God can handle whatever threats are being leveled against you. That's what we want to say rationally, logically. But Elijah's operating out of a place of panic. 
He's operating out of a place of fear. He's been through some of the most traumatic, significant, weighty, heavy, emotional moments in just the last couple of days. He's been through moments where it was truly just him and God, just putting it all on the line. And if, the, if something had worked out, if the, if the prophets of Baal had worked out some kind of trick to set their, their altar on fire, then surely it would have been Elijah that would have been attacked by all of the people. And he was, he's, he's thinking back to these moments where it was, he was just counting on God to show up and the gravity of that, the weight of that moment feels so heavy. And now here he is. And after all of that success, after all of that victory, here he is and his life is still under threat. He's still worried. He's still feeling like this just isn't getting any better. And so he runs and he travels this great distance. And then he leaves his assistant, the one person who's been with him through this story, and he proceeds on by himself. And here he is in the desert, all by himself, all alone, unsure about his future, and he wonders, what's the point? Why should I keep trying? There's not any hope left for me. In fact, Elijah sounds like he's considering ending it all himself. And in the aftermath of one of the most wondrous, profound demonstrations of God's power in all of history, Elijah's spirit just wilted. He lost hope. He lost confidence. He lost direction. He lost his faith that God would be able to rescue him from that darkness. And you know, it happens more often than you think. It happens more often than you might imagine that somebody has this incredible, emotional, mountaintop experience in their life, and then after that moment is done, suddenly the bottom drops out and they feel like there's nothing worth pursuing. Sports psychologists know about this. In fact, they've given it a name. They talk about post-Olympic depression or the post-Olympic blues. Every couple of years after the Winter Olympics or the Summer Olympics, there are always these athletes who have had this incredibly emotional and physiologically demanding roller coaster of an experience in the months leading up to the Olympic Games and then the month that they spend at the Olympic Games. Everything's just been supercharged with emotion and energy and expectations. And then these people go home And some of them won medals and some of them didn't. Some of them got to compete. Some of them found themselves injured or disqualified at the last minute and everything they'd been working for didn't come to fruition. And they find themselves going home and facing this emotional letdown as they come back to real life and try to figure out how they're supposed to be spending their time and what they're supposed to be pursuing and who it is that they are. And it turns out that all of these swimmers and sprinters and skiers who seem like superheroes to us. They're just people. They're just humans. And they're typical, it's a typical human response to feel overwhelmed. It's a common, natural human response to feel overwhelmed. In fact, the more extreme the situation that you're facing or dealing with, or the more novel the situation is based on your experience, the more normal it is for a human to be overwhelmed by it all. And it doesn't just happen to the Olympians. In fact, one of the groups of people in our culture who are most commonly plagued by depression 
are retirees, people who have suddenly found themselves with a different purpose or lack of purpose to occupy their time. And people who are preparing for retirement have all of this buildup and this preparation and this anticipation and sometimes celebration. And, and, and they're thinking this, this ought to be the culmination of this great effort, years worth of time that I've poured into preparing for this moment. But what ought to be a happy occasion can sometimes leave people feeling aimless and adrift and they're not sure what to do not sure who they are aside from their vocation, aside from their career. And it can leave people struggling, wondering, how am I supposed to use my time? What is the point of my being here? There's another group that we know about. We talk about this. Uh, this is a common experience for us to see with young moms who have given birth and suddenly find themselves experiencing symptoms that we call postpartum depression. And when you think about it, it's an incredibly weighty emotional moment. And they've experienced the miracle of bringing new life into the world, but it's certainly an experience that comes with its own trauma and its own challenges and difficulty and the emotions that surround that experience and then the expectations that are looming and waiting for them as soon as that baby is born and all the challenges of caring for a new baby. And it can lead to this overwhelming sense of sadness and fatigue. And it's a totally normal, natural, natural human response to be overwhelmed by the entire experience of childbirth. And I want, what I want you to hear me say is that whether we're talking about a prophet, a preacher, an Olympian, retirees, new moms, or anybody else, it is a totally normal, natural human response to experience overwhelm. It is totally normal to experience overwhelm in your life. Sometimes the season of, the li of life that you find yourself in, sometimes the situation that you're facing that you've never faced before, sometimes the role that you've suddenly been called to play creates a level of stress and pressure and anxiety that's too much to carry. And there can be milestones in your life that you think, man, I ought to be celebrating this, this graduation, this marriage, this parenthood, this move, this promotion, this new job. I ought to be celebrating all of this, but it feels so overwhelming and I'm not sure who I am or if I can handle what I have to do. And I want to tell you that happens because we're human, because we're not superheroes. We're human and we have strengths, but we also have vulnerabilities. And that was true of Elijah. You know, there's a passage in the New Testament portion of the Bible, hundreds of years after Elijah's life, there's a moment when James, the brother of Jesus, is writing and using Elijah as an example of somebody who had great faith. It's not a long passage, but he's talking about Elijah in there, and he makes this simple, profound statement right in the very middle of that section. James says, Elijah was a person just like us. Elijah, the prophet of God, who called down fire from heaven, who called for rain and it showed up. Elijah, who was known as one of the most faithful followers of God in history, was a person just like us. Which means that this preacher, 
This prophet who shared a bold message on God's behalf had vulnerabilities just like the rest of us do. And when Elijah came down from that emotional mountaintop experience at Mount Carmel, and when he found himself in the valley, he found that depression was waiting for him there. But what we're going to discover together over the course of the next few weeks as we work our way through this story, what we're going to discover is that when Elijah found depression waiting for him in the valley, he found God waiting for him too. In fact, for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through 1 Kings 19, and we're going to look at this entire episode in Elijah's story, and we're going to look for the ways that God comforted and encouraged and healed and commissioned Elijah to experience new hope and new purpose in his life. But it's so critical as we start this journey, so important for all of us together to be on the same page about the reality and the spiritual challenge of depression. Because depression has the capacity to convince you that God is a long way off. Depression has the ability to make you believe, contrary to your Sunday morning convictions and statements, depression has the ability to make you believe that you're on your own and that you're forgotten and that nobody sees you and nobody can help you out of the hole that you found yourself in. But I'm here to tell you that depression lies. Depression lies. And the truth is that the Lord is close to those who are experiencing depression. The Lord is close to people who feel alone. Psalm 34 verse 18 said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those whose spirits are crushed. I hope you'll remember that verse. I hope you'll take note of that one, bookmark that one, save it someplace where you can find it again. Maybe you print it off and put it someplace where you'll see it pretty regular because there's gonna be a moment that comes in your life or a series of moments that come in your life when you feel like, boy, my spirit is crushed. I'm overwhelmed by the burdens of everything that I'm worried about, everything that I'm experiencing in this life. And we're going to go through this journey together in this series, and we're going to cover some important ground. But if there's only one thing you hear me say today, if there's only one statement that you come away from today's message with, I hope it's this, that God cares about the anxieties and the stresses we feel in this life. And God sees and cares in the moments when our stress and anxiety becomes overwhelming. And so God is not disappointed in us when we experience depression. In fact, those are times when God promises to show up. God's not disappointed that we have weaknesses. God is not disappointed that we have vulnerabilities. God was not disappointed in Elijah. Even prophets get depressed. God wasn't disappointed. But what we're going to soon see as we journey together is that in Elijah's most overwhelmed moment, God showed up. God knows our struggles. God understands our pain and God can see us in the darkness. In fact, God is a God who pursues those who find themselves in the darkness. There's one more verse I want to read to you this morning. John chapter 12. There's a moment when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I have come as a light into the world 
so that everyone who believes in me won't live in darkness. Everybody I've ever spoken to about depression says depression feels like darkness. That it feels like the light is dimming. And Jesus says, I'm here so that that doesn't have to be your story. And this is the journey we're gonna go on together. We're gonna recognize, we're gonna come to understand, we're gonna study about the idea that there is a spiritual aspect to the way we respond to depression in this life. And the story God is telling is a story of bringing light into the darkness.